Good morning. It is an honor to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the board of Reform Theological Seminary, as well as the campus of the Washington, D.C. site of Reform Theological Seminary, as well as from our chancellor. Uh, we always report where we're preaching and where we will be on given weekends, and so you can know that they send you not only their greetings, but want you to know that you are in their prayers. Uh, it's a joy to be here. I want to thank you, uh, Arlington Baptist Church, just for your co-laboring in the gospel, in the, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not only in the city of Arlington, but in Northern Virginia, and Washington, D.C., and around the world. It is a joy to be able to work with different churches in the D.C. area and see how the Lord is bringing his body to bear um, in, in, around the area, around, around the city of Washington, D.C., I also want to thank you in particular just for loaning us your pastor, uh, Pastor Mike Law, to us at the seminary. Having him in class is a true joy. I can tell you that I don't just speak for myself, but for the other faculty. When he's in a class, we know that the, the discourse in that class is going to be raised uh, a certain level, and uh, it's an enrichment not only for the faculty, but also for the other students. So thank you for loaning him to us as a student uh, while he's doing his studies. Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. This is one of the last Gospels that was written. This was the last Gospel written uh, that we know of in the New Testament. Uh, written by the Apostle, of course, who refers to himself as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Uh, had a close and special relationship with the Lord himself. And uh, this Gospel has its own kind of flavor and perspective on the way that it teaches how Jesus not only was incarnate, but what that means not only for his church, but what that means for the world. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. What does the Gospel of John teach us about Jesus that's unique to the Gospel of John? So we're going to spend some time just meditating on that. But our reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 20 through 26. John 17, verse 20 through 26. Now this is Jesus praying before he's, right before he's betrayed. He's, he's praying with his apostles, with his disciples, and he's offering up a prayer about them to his Father in heaven. And he says this, I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples gathered there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a God who requires us to climb a mountain to find you, but that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that we might have it with us right here, that we don't have to go to the highest heavens to find it or descend to the depths, but that it's been given to us, Lord. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word this morning, and that your spirit would attend to it, that we might not merely learn and build our inventory of theological knowledge, but that we would find ourselves transformed of heart and of mind and of body and of our whole lives. Have mercy on us, Lord, this morning as we come before you, that we would not be consumed, but that we would be rejuvenated by the teaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So I do have two titles, as uh, you heard in the introduction. I'm both the president of Reformed Theological Seminary and a professor of Old Testament. And I can tell you that the former brings with it much more honor than the latter. Okay, uh, Being a professor of Old Testament is often uh, kind of an obscurity, an obscure position for most people who I talk to. As a matter of fact, one of my colleagues at the seminary um, our former colleagues, uh, who was also a professor of Old Testament, called himself a professor of irrelevance uh, because of the way that most of the church thinks about the Old Testament. I'm actually reminded of the UNLV basketball player who, running off the basketball court after a particularly poor game, is met by his coach on the sideline, and the coach says, Son, are you ignorant or apathetic? To which the basketball player says, Coach, I don't know and I don't care. Yeah, give it a minute, it comes, okay? That is honestly how a lot of the church thinks about the Old Testament because after all, we have the New Testament now, right? We have Jesus. The old days, we had the prophets of the old, but now we have the Son of God Himself. Why would we go back to the Old Testament? And so I have to think about that a good bit. I need it for job security for one reason, but I also need it as I'm talking to my students as a, you know, this is the Word of God. And what does this mean for us? How do we think about the old and how it relates to the new? And one of the images that I think is kind of helpful is the image of, of a blueprint and a building. Okay, a blueprint on one side and a building on the other. Think about it. If you're an architect or if you've ever uh, done any kind of work on your house or been a part of a building project, you know that when you start a building project, you don't start with the building. You start with the blueprint, right? And the blueprint tells you all sorts of things about the building. It kind of, kind of teaches you how the building works, right? You see where the load-bearing walls are. You see where the circuitry is going to be laid, where the pipes are going to be laid and connected to the city sewer and the city water. Uh, you find out where the windows are going to be so that you can have proper lighting throughout the building. And if you ask an architect when they're working on the building, what, what are you working on? They'll show you the blueprint. Okay? They'll say, this is it. This is the building that I'm doing. Right? But then once the building is built, they don't point at the blueprint anymore, do they? As a matter of fact, if you say, show me some of your work, they won't take you into their drafting room and show you blueprints. They'll go drive you around town. They'll show you the building. So you can see it in its full glory. But here's the thing. Once the building is built, do you throw away the blueprint? No, you don't. You have to keep it because you still have to know how the building works. Where are the load-bearing walls? If the, if the electricity needs to be rewired, where are the wires laid? The building can't tell you that. You need to go back to the blueprint. Well, I'd actually argue that the Old Testament relates to the New Testament kind of like a blueprint relates to a building. 
shows you where the load-bearing walls are. It shows you where the circuitry is laid. As a matter of fact, think about it. In the Gospel of Mark, the whole Gospel kind of hinges on Jesus as Messiah. As a matter of fact, it's in Mark 8 where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. And that's kind of the turning point of the book. But if you read the book as a whole, nowhere in the book do you actually get a definition of who Messiah is or who Christ is. Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. But we never actually get a definition of it. You have to go back and read your Old Testament to know who Messiah is. When the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest, you actually don't get a definition of what a high priest does unless you go back and read the Old Testament. You've got to go back to the blueprint. You've got to see where the load-bearing walls are. I'd even argue that we don't really know what redemption is if we don't understand the exodus event. We don't know what restoration from exile is unless we go back and reread about the exile. We don't even know exactly how the Spirit works unless we go back and we see how the Spirit moves throughout the Old Testament. So you have to constantly be going back to the blueprint to understand the building of our salvation. As a matter of fact, that's why the New Testament writers spend so much time saying this was to fulfill what was said by this prophet, or this was to fulfill what was said in the Old Testament by Moses, the prophets, and and David. Uh, They're constantly referring back to the blueprint to say this is how Jesus is the building that was planned back in Israel. And when we come to the Gospel of John, we actually run into a lot of these little blueprint references. Some of them are quite oblique. They're kind of subtle. And we're going to actually look at one of them in the passage that we just read today. Uh, But before I do that, I just want to talk a little bit about John and what John is trying to do here in his Gospel. Because as we read a book, you don't want to just kind of read it without understanding the context, but you want to understand exactly what the writer is trying to do. John is writing pretty late in the New Testament period. His writings seem to be the latest of the New Testament writings. And as such, he's responding to some kind of ideas that have been developing in the early church back then in his day. And the ideas were kind of, uh, they started off as trying to explain aspects of the gospel, but these ideas actually kind of moved into heresy pretty quickly and became what John calls darkness. He says not only are they minor errors, but they're actually darkness that blinds believers from the truth. One of my colleagues uh, writes that John wrote his gospel first in order to kind of coax out the heresy. And then when the heresy, the heretics were coaxed out, these false teachers, he then wrote his letters and directly addressed them, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so that you should read them as such. John is kind of like the bait to pull out the heretics. And then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are the responses to the heretics. So you have to ask the question, what, what were these heretics teaching? What was this, this false teaching that John was so passionate to respond to? And we have to kind of read between the lines because we don't have their writings in front of us. We just have John's response to them. So we have to do a little bit of kind of CSI sleuthing as we read through uh, the gospel writer and kind of say, okay, what points are he, is he highlighting about Jesus? And as we do that, we find that there's really, you know, kind of two main points that it seems that John is really trying to refute, okay? And, and that helps us understand who these false teachers were and what they were teaching. And the, and the first point is this. It seemed to be that these false teachers were teaching something along the lines that Jesus was with us, we could hear him, we could see him, but he probably wasn't really a human, okay? Jesus was great. He was a great teacher. He was a marvelous rabbi. 
He even had a kind of power. They don't, they don't refute the fact, not like today, where people would say, Jesus probably didn't do those miracles. They say, oh no, he probably did. But he probably wasn't a human. There's this kind of early thought back then that, that humans are sort of derivative. They're sort of secondary. They're lesser. Our bodies grow old. Our, our bodies kind of sag and smell. And who really wants our great teacher, Jesus, to be one of these nasty humans? Right? So they argue that he must have been something, some kind of angelic or spiritual being. Okay? So that was the one side of it. They seem to be saying, listen, Jesus is so great, we don't really want to say that he actually became fleshly human incarnate. But then it's interesting because they also had this other view. They said, and do we really want to say that Jesus was the creator God? I mean, the God God? <laughs> you know, maybe he was some kind of demigod. Maybe he was some kind of, of, of spiritual being, but I don't think we want to say that he's the one. He, he's, he's, he is Elohim. He is Adonai. I don't think we really want to say that he was that great. But again, he was probably some kind of derivative angelic being of some sort. Not quite human, but not quite God. You can kind of expect how that kind of belief might raise up. They're trying to explain this person of Jesus Christ. And it seems like it's going to explain things and make it a little bit easier to understand. And that's actually what a lot of heresy does. It, it, it begins with this intention to explain. But as John points out, it ultimately shrouds. It ultimately becomes a veil between us and the truth. John says the people who believe that are people who walk in darkness and they hate the light. So John goes to respond to these kinds of false beliefs and false teachings about Jesus. And in doing so, or the way that he does it, is by taking Old Testament texts that are clearly referring to God and then drawing them up kind of subtly into his own biblical account of who Jesus is. And so he takes these Old Testament stories and these Old Testament, this Old Testament language and he applies it to Jesus in this very subversive way. He doesn't actually say all the time that he's quoting the Old Testament, but he'll just do it and he'll kind of tweak it to show how Jesus is now filling this great role of both truly God and truly man. So you don't have to get very far into the gospel to see how John does this. Go look at John 1.1. 1, 1. How does John 1.1 1, 1 go? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see that? He's saying He is God. He's not just a secondary God. He is God. And then he goes on, and what does he say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh. He really was flesh, John says. He wasn't just a spiritual epiphany. He was flesh, and He was God. So he kind of smuggles in this idea about Jesus being fully God and fully man. But notice how he does it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is he referring to in the Old Testament by starting that way? In the beginning. Yeah, it's Genesis 1. He's retelling the biblical story in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, and you want to know a little bit more about that? It was through the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's bringing in Old Testament teaching about the Lord, and he's updating it to apply to the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
I heard a talk recently by a professor of history at the King's College named Joe LaConte, and he was talking about C.S. Lewis and how C.S. Lewis, when he was writing his first allegorical novel, it was actually the science fiction series. Um, what's the first one? Is it Paralandrum? Okay, am I right? Okay, somebody nod, tell me. Yeah. So he wrote the first one, he publishes it, and the reviews start coming back, and the reviews were very positive from secular literary critics. But he noticed that none of them picked up on the biblical illusions. It's clearly a book about the fall, right? The whole story is about the fall. And he realized, you know, you can smuggle in a lot of truth through allegory, through story. I think the gospel writer John realized that you can smuggle in a lot of truth about the Old Testament just by subtly using this language without kind of quite pointing it out, but just subtly bringing language in to say what was true of the God of the Old Testament is true of Jesus today. He does it elsewhere. John is famous in his gospel for his I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Now think about what he's doing there. He's highlighting Jesus' teaching, and he's highlighting this phraseology that Jesus would use, right? In the Greek, it's ego, me. I am. I am. I am. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, the Pharisees pick up stones. It's not because they, they hate this idea that he's talking about that seems, has to do with like time travel or something, how he was existing before Abraham, but they recognize what Jesus is actually saying when he keeps saying, ego, me. I am. I am. I am. He's claiming not only to be a true vine, but he's claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who revealed himself to Moses and said, I am. I am that I am. Again, John is like C.S. Lewis, smuggling in the truth of the Old Testament into his account of the life of Jesus. So then we come to our passage today, and I think we see a bit of this blueprint and building happening here in John 17. Now this passage is usually referred to as the high priestly prayer, which is interesting because the high priestly prayer and the language of priest doesn't actually ever occur in this prayer. You only know it if you've read your Old Testament. Okay, again, a little bit of the blueprint in the building. So this is called Jesus' high priestly prayer because he's interceding between his people and his Father in heaven. He's interceding and he's consecrating his people for the job that he's sending them out to do. Now I would argue that as he's preaching, as he's praying this prayer before his, before his followers, he's building up to this crescendo, which is what we're reading today, verse 20 through 26. It's a finale of his prayer. And he structures this finale in a very particular way. I would argue that he's actually referring to the text that we read here as our Old Testament text, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So he's structuring this final part of his prayer around the structure of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is a famous passage in the Jewish mind. It's actually referred to as the Shema. Okay. It's referred to as the Shema because the Shema, word Shema is actually the first Hebrew word that occurs in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And it's the great creed of the Old Testament. It's the great core of the Mosaic Code. 
And so people often refer to it in this kind of shorthand, which is Shema, was the first word of the phrase. And throughout the Old Testament, whether you're reading the prophets or you're in the intertestamental period, or even at the time of Christ, this was considered to kind of be the distillation of everything that Moses was teaching. Even Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? Well, we all know that. It's love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. You see, the Shema was structural. It was central to the Old Testament biblical belief. And it was central to Jesus' own teaching about the Scriptures. He believed that it was the greatest commandment. So let's, let's pause for a moment and just think about the Shema just before we move on to the prayer. Let's think about the logic of it. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. We don't possess Him, obviously. We don't, we don't own Him. He's not like a Baal idol that I can hold and say, here's my God. But He is our God as a people because He has, in His good pleasure, joined Himself to us in this special relationship that we call covenant. He's bound Himself up to us, and as such, we can say that He is our God. He loves us. He, he has a special relationship to us. He's even bound Himself to promises that He's made. He says, if you honor me, then I'll give you this land. If you dishonor me, if you leave me, then I will send you into exile. But don't worry, I'll bring you back afterwards and I'll put you in a better place than you were before. But you see, when Yahweh does that in the Old Testament, he's binding himself to these people. It's even a people who aren't a particularly great people. Deuteronomy 7 says that I didn't love you because you were great. I loved you because you were the least. But here we have the God of the universe binding himself to a small nomadic people and saying, I will be your God. But he's not just our God, he's also one God. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now what he means by that is that he's not merely our covenantal Lord, but he's actually whole, he's singular, he's one you remember in the Old Testament, if you've done some Old Testament reading, particularly in the historical books, you'll know that local towns would sometimes have local deities. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a Baal of Peor, and there would be a Baal of Hebron, and a Baal of Eshkelon. Because if you had one Baal, he would care for one kind of jurisdiction, and then you'd move on to the next town, and you'd have another Baal, and he would care for that jurisdiction. Yahweh is saying, I'm not like that. Okay? I'm one God. There's no Yahweh of Jericho versus the Yahweh of Jerusalem. You can't go appeal to one Yahweh, and if he turns you down, you go to the next town and appeal to another Yahweh. Yahweh's one. He's singular. He's whole. Now, a friend of mine, John Frame, likes to say this about theology. He says, theology is not just teaching of Scripture, but it's the teaching of Scripture applied to situations in life. And so for Moses, this was true too. So he says, Yahweh is our God, and Yahweh is one God. He's whole and he's singular. And now there's an application to your life on that. How should you respond? Well, you should respond in kind. You too should be whole and singular in your love for Him. Love Him with all of your heart. Love Him with all of yourself. Love Him with all of your strength. And when he says strength, by the way, he's really talking about all of your worldly effect. Okay? He's not just talking about like your muscles or something. He's talking about your wealth, your relational, your relational capital, your, your wisdom. Okay? If you're retired, 
your job is not now to kind of say, well, I'm, I'm done with working. I'm just going to sit back and relax. He says, no, you need to love the Lord your God with all that you have. So if you have wisdom and experience from having worked a, your, whole, your whole life, then you're supposed to use that toward the love of God. If you're young and healthy, you're supposed to use your youth and your health toward the love of God. Because Yahweh is one and whole and singular. So should you be one and whole and singular in your love toward Him. So that's kind of the logic of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. through 9. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. And now notice we see Jesus. And He's talking again about God. And He's talking about the, na- the nature of God in this prayer. And notice what He's focusing on. He's focusing on God's oneness. On God's wholeness. And he actually structures the end of his prayer around this idea of God's wholeness. Now, of course, this echo of the Old Testament is not explicitly laid out by John the Apostle, but he's kind of smuggling it in. He's kind of updating the Shema now to account for the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus in this passage has just prayed for his disciples. He's consecrated them to go out and and take his word out to the world. He realizes, by the way, that just as he is about to go to his death, he's consecrating his apostles for their deaths as well. As a matter of fact, apart from John, we know that most of the apostles died martyrs' deaths. So as Jesus is consecrating his disciples, he's sending them out to their own death and to their own doom. And he knows that this is the nature of the gospel ministry because it's where he's going to that evening, as a matter of fact. But then he moves on to this. He moves on to this interaction between himself and the Father. Notice he's making a statement about the oneness of God, but in a new way. He's appropriating Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And he's claiming that this is still true. The Shema is still true. The Lord is our God, and He is still one. But He is one in the sense that the Son and the Father are also one. Jesus is saying that the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ does not confound or refute Moses' ancient creed, but rather God is still one. He's comprised of Father and Son. We see these kind of appropriations of the Shema elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6, Paul says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and lords, he puts those in quotes, or rather we put those in quotes for him, uh, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are made and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, he's taking the Shema, the oneness of God, and he's saying that applies to Christ as well. The truth of God's oneness is not an abstract theological point, but it has direct bearing on his people. The Father and the Son are one, and as Jesus is about to pray, so also ought we be one. You see, God loves wholeness and oneness so much in his character that he desires that his people be one as well. Now, if we don't stop for a moment to consider the Old Testament, Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we might miss kind of the world historical thing that Jesus is saying here. And we don't want to miss this. Notice what he's saying. He's taking the Shema that says, the Lord is one, therefore you should be one. 
And then he's saying, let me explain a little bit more about that in light of myself, but also it's through me that you're going to understand how it actually works. You see, for Moses and Israel, they never actually find out how exactly are you supposed to be one just as the Father is one, just as the God that we serve is one. How are we supposed to also be one? The Shema doesn't offer a way, but Jesus does. You see, Jesus says, you are to be one through me. See, because I'm one with the Father, and because you're my body, because you're my people, you can now be one just as the Father, the Lord in heaven, is one. You see, Jesus becomes the conduit through which the wholeness of God is applied and worked out in the life of his people. Jesus says, let them be one just as you and I are one, as I am in you, Father, and they are in me. But notice also that the Shema structure is maintained here as well in the sense that the response of God's people is not just an intellectual assent to the oneness of God, but it's actually a love. Okay? God's people are called to respond with a wholeness of love towards one another because they are united in the person of Jesus Christ. There's kind of a, an interest in ecumenism these days. As a matter of fact, even my position at the seminary, I get invited to a lot of ecumenical gatherings. And they're all kind of interesting, but there's this idea that we need to be gathering together across denominational lines and, um, and, and kind of talking and, and chatting and, and getting to know each other. And sometimes they're actually somewhat meaningful. Sometimes it feels like we're just, you know, having coffee and then releasing a joint statement on our choice of sweeteners. But for the most part, I think they're kind of generally positive things to gather together and be ecumenical and to, to meet across lines, denominational lines. But notice what the Lord is praying for here is not a kind of cold ecumenism. He's not calling us to a sacred coffee clutch. He's, he's calling us to an abiding, unifying love. We are called to a warm, loving, professing love for one another. We should always be drawn toward unity as the body of Christ. We should have this kind of strange attraction that we can't quite put our finger on to other followers of Jesus Christ. And the best word to describe it is this word love. Now I think that love is actually founded on three things. And I'm just going to close with uh, just kind of a brief discussion of those three things. One is the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're bound up in our love for one another because of Christ's lordship. The second one is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We're bound up in our love for one another through the spiritual union that we share. And then thirdly, it's our eternal chosenness. Okay? That's how Jesus closes His prayer. He says, just as you chose me from before the beginning of time, let them be united together. So how about the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, we're united because Jesus is our Lord. We're united in our joint loyalty to King Jesus and His mission on this earth. Okay? As a matter of fact, that loyalty is to be so primary, is to be so, so singular in focus that all other loyalties fall away. So whatever other reason you may have for not wanting to be with a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, it's all secondary and derivative compared to the loyalty that we have to our Lord. 
And the result of that ought to be love. Abiding love. He is our King. And we serve Him above all others. No other loyalty can vie for our loyalty to Him. And that alone, my friends, is a call and a cause for great loyalty. We join this loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ by seeking one another. Seeking each other out. Pursuing community with one another. Developing intimate relationships where we care. And we let that light of Jesus Christ that John talks about shine into every aspect of our lives. Lifting each other up. Caring for the poor. Seeking out those who are wounded. It's the call that we have in Jesus Christ. There's a part in the first book of The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien where Frodo is leaving on this journey and he knows that the journey that he's going on is going to probably end in his death and his destruction. And so he's trying to go by himself. He doesn't want his friends to come with him because if they come, they'll probably go to their own doom as well. And so he sneaks off from the Shire and of course Sam and Pippin and Mary find him and they track him down. And Frodo says, no, you can't come with me. You have to go back. You can't, you can't come and risk your lives. You don't know what, what you're getting into. And Mary responds to him in this way. He says, it all depends on what you want. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. You can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We're horribly afraid. But we are coming with you or following you like hounds. I think the kind of love that we're called to in Christ, this unifying love, means that we follow one another like hounds. We pursue each other into the trouble, into the persecution, into the suffering. Even when we try to push each other back, we say we're coming with you or we're following you like hounds. What great loyalty and friendship we're called to in Christ Jesus because He is our King and our Lord. Secondly, we're united through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 1-3. through 3, He says, and he's writing now from prison to the church in Ephesus. He's calling them to unity and he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, and he means that in a literal sense, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, Paul sees that we are unified spiritually through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's not merely His Lordship that draws us together, but it's the fact that we really share the same spiritual DNA. At our lowest spiritual base form, we are all alike in Christ. The Spirit of Christ binds us together. We can feel how the Spirit indwells us, how He regenerates us, and how He empowers us to the work of the Gospel. That means, as Paul says, that we are like little temples 
Our bodies are like temples walking around the face of this earth. And we're called and joined together. And when we gather on Sunday morning, it's a gathering of temples of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so there should be this very deep spiritual existential bond that we feel towards one another. That we are united in Christ. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, There is one body and there is one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think our spiritual unity finds expression in the relationships that we have. And our joint, Lord, uh, our joint loyalty toward the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I think it actually finds its most kind of beautiful and pure expression in the way that we pursue the sacraments. That we come together and we gather as a community and we take part in baptism. Which is the way that you enter into the community of belief, the covenant community. And we do it when we take part in the Lord's Supper, when we remember and we mark our salvation in Jesus Christ and how we share in His atoning death. It's the Spirit that draws us together as a community who is united in the Spirit of Christ. Because of this deep connection, because of this deep intimacy of the Spirit, we should have a very high bar indeed for what will divide us. I'm saddened sometimes when I see how divided the church is seems like right now, I think, particularly as we're experiencing a time of, of sort of cultural exile, I would say. A time when there's, there's, a, there's a real push against the teaching of the gospel. It's sad to see the church be fragmented during this time. I think it's actually a call that we ought to have to be more united. That we might provide a united picture of the body of Christ. I don't think that means that we have to demolish denominations. Actually, I think in some ways, denominations make it possible for us to have unity, which is a wonderful thing. The Baptists and the Presbyterians don't have to fight every Sunday on how they're going to do baptism. Because of denominations, we get to share in our fellowship together in peace. But I too think there's a time, this is a time when we ought to be called to a greater unity, a united face, as we enter into this time of kind of a cultural exile may be a strong word, but that's what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.1. He addresses the whole church universally, and he says, I'm writing to strangers and exiles. So there's a sense in which, as we wait for Christ's return, we are in exile. But we are bound as exiles by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we're bound by the Lordship of Christ, we're bound by the Spirit of Christ, and lastly... We're bound by this eternal chosenness, this eternal election that we have in Jesus Christ. We are bound by our mutual recognition that we are a true community who has been given to the Son by the Father from before the beginning of time. That's why I think these ecumenical movements that we talk about are in some ways kind of an attempt to live out what is already true. Think about that. Jesus says, let them be one as you, Father, and I are one. So he's saying the oneness of the Trinity is a model and a foundation for the oneness of the church. Now let me ask you this. Is there ever a time when Jesus is not a part of the Trinity? No, the Trinity is a fact. The Trinity is not an ideal. It's a truth about who God is, about his nature. 
as three in one. That means that church unity is also not an ideal. It's not something we strive for necessarily as so much as it's a fact already. It has been accomplished. The second person of the Trinity has asked the first person of the Trinity that we be united. And do we think that the Lord, that the Father, would deny the Son His request? Absolutely not. You see, the oneness of the church is already an accomplished thing. Our job only now is to repent unto that end. But we have been set aside from before the beginning of time as a gift from the Father to the Son. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing during a time when the Third Reich was on the rise and he was calling the church to a greater unity in the face of persecution. He himself would find himself in prison and finally killed right before the end of World War II because of his own opposition to Hitler and the Third Reich. So he was not Pollyannish when he called the church to unity. He understood that this would be a struggle, that Christians were falling away. People who claimed the name of Christ were giving up that claim in the face of the Third Reich. And so he said, we must stay unified. But then he writes this about Christian unity. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this, whether it be a brief single encounter or a daily fellowship of years. Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. That's the lordship aspect. It means second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. That's the spiritual bonding aspect. And then lastly, thirdly, it means that in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from all eternity, accepted in time, and united for all eternity. You see, like the Trinity, the unity of the church is not something that's out there that we haven't maintained or attained, but rather it's something that is already ours. We own it. We should repent and believe towards it. You know, one of my greatest pleasures as a professor of theology is that I, I get to go to Turkey, where we, we prayed for the church in Turkey this morning. I get to go to Turkey, and I get to minister to pastors there who are converts from Islam into Christianity. And it's really an amazing privilege to be able to meet with these individuals, because many of them have been kicked out of their families, out of their homes, out of their towns. They're kind of persona non grata where they live. They can't go to the seminaries in Cairo or elsewhere because... They are converts from Islam into Christianity. And so we gather them together uh, in this town and we teach them and I often go to them and, and usually the first thing I say is that while we're in class, I'll be the teacher. While we're out of class, you need to be the teacher. They are so acquainted with the sufferings of Christ that they experience, I think, the sufferings of Christ in a way that I don't quite even understand living in my Western environment. And so I need them to teach me about it. Well, when I'm there, I usually go preach at this refugee church that's in town. And um, usually whenever our professors are there, they preach at this church. And it's a church that's a gathering of Syrians and, and Iraqi Christians, a lot of Kurds. There's some Iranians there because there's a Farsi service. All of them are refugees. And we were driving there this one Sunday night. And 
as we're driving in this bus, it's me, I'm surrounded by, you know, 15 of my closest friends from North Africa and the Middle East in this bus, and one of them turns to me and goes, oh, by the way, he's the one who can speak English, he goes, by the way, last time we were here, there was, there was kind of a riot. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. That's interesting. He said, yeah, I was against the, the Christians at the church, but don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. So we're driving in. I'm the, I'm the one sole white guy, sole American on this bus. We're driving down into this neighborhood where there had been a riot after the last Christian service there this, the weekend before. That, by the way, that story is an interesting one unto itself, but I'll, I'll spare you it. So we show up at the church, we get out of the bus, and we're walking up to the church, and the first thing we all notice is that there's this group of youths hanging out right in front of the church, and they're kind of standing around, leaning on this broken down, you know, rusted out truck, okay? This truck does not have a long future, okay? It, it's had a good life. It's, it's near the, its last legs. And here are all these guys standing around. It doesn't even look like it's drivable. They're all sitting around just kind of smoking cigarettes. They're not talking. They're just watching us as we walk in. And what am I thinking? I'm thinking, that truck's going to blow up, right? So we go into the church service. And actually, as I'm preaching, there's a glass wall kind of around the back of the church. And the truck is right outside. So everyone's looking at the truck. I know it's there, and I'm waiting at any minute for that thing to go off. Okay? And, you know, for, honestly, for about the first 15 minutes of the sermon, actually, just to kind of give you a little more color, uh, this is the kind of church where, even though it's not a really big room, every, everything is amped and the volume's turned up to 11, okay? And the windows are open, so everyone knows what we're doing in there. Okay? Everybody in the neighborhood can hear our worship music and can hear me preaching through a translator. And so I'm preaching, and for the first 15 minutes, I'm honestly just trying to get the words out. I'm preaching on Mark 2, 1 through 12. And I'm trying to get the words out, and I'm waiting for something to happen. Okay? And then suddenly, in the middle of this church service, I don't, I don't know what it was. I would say it's the Spirit. I, I'm looking out at the people's faces, and I'm seeing these men and these women and these children who have fled their homes. For them, this is not a new experience. They're used to being worried about the rusted out truck. They're there to hear the gospel. And I'm preaching to them, and suddenly it's like a shift, and I realize I need you to hear this. Right? Hear this teaching about Jesus. As we are possibly standing here on the edge of eternity together, let's be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we already are. As the hymn writer writes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, it's quite likely that you're going to be standing in that 10,001st year, you're going to be standing next to an Iraqi or a Syrian or a Chinese Christian worshiping the name of Jesus Christ. And you will be united with them in worship because you will have been united with them from all eternity as a gift of the Father to the Son. Now as we walked out, the truck was gone. I don't know what happened. Praise God. But I realized there at that moment that this is what the unity of the people of God looks like. The unity of the body of Christ. It's ours. We've attained it. Now we need to repent and live toward that end. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up to you this church.
not only this building and these people gathered here, but the church around the Washington, D.C. area. I pray, Lord, that there would be a mighty movement of the gospel and gospel people in the city of Washington, D.C. Let us be bound together in the, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, united by His Spirit, and cognizant of our identity as the eternal people of God. Let us take great hope in that, Lord, and let it make us bold, bold proclaimers of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise and join me in the singing of Christian Hearts and Love United. You can find an insert in the bulletin.